0: Are you thankful for the love of God this morning? Thank you for that beautiful song. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, uh, John Alley, for leading. It's not often that I get to sit in the congregation and sing with you. And I like both perspectives. I like leading from here with you, and I like singing with you from the floor. So thank you, John, for giving me that privilege this morning. There are a few professions whose name is synonymous with sacrifice. We would all agree that the word soldier would fit that description. Possibly policeman, fireman, dare I say, mother. (laughs) But does sacrifice come to your mind when you hear the word missionary? Well, it should. Those are the people who give their lives for the ultimate growth for the kingdom of God in every nation. And there are some missionaries whom God has called to lay down their lives for the gospel's sake. This past October, my family and I went on vacation. And we decided for our family devotion time that we would read a book together. And so we... Got the biography of Nate Saint, missionary to Ecuador. And I was struck by this incredible story of sacrifice once again. that didn't just include Nate Saint, but also Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, Jim Elliott, and Ed McCulley. In, 19, in 1956, in the month of January, they would give their lives. For the gospel's sake. But here were five common, young, ordinary men whose unifying distinction was less than just their abilities or acquired skills or just their commitment to seek God's will. They had much more than that. They had decided a long time ago that the Great Commission was not optional. And that even if it meant giving their lives, even laying down their very lives and blood for the gospel, that it would be worth it even for a tribe of Alca Indians who had never heard the gospel. Now they had done their homework. They understood that the days of the 16th century conquistadors in that area in Ecuador had definitely struck a bad chord, should we say, with those tribes. And so they were very fearful of any outsiders and would actually kill any outsiders that would come to tell them anything, let alone the gospel. Still, these common men had the uncommon, burning desire to follow Jesus' command to take the gospel message all over the world, particularly where the name of Jesus had never been heard. And I'm convinced that these men deeply loved their lives as well as you do. They loved their families. They loved their wives and children and uncles and aunts and cousins. They loved all of them. But they had a deeper love, a greater love for their Savior. They loved their life and they loved their family, but they loved Jesus more. They had heard and obeyed the heart and Difficult words of Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And this past October, as I was reading this story, as we all took turns reading it, about Nate Saint, we were struck that They just had their sights on obeying the Great Commission and taking the gospel to these Alka Indian tribes. They were not going to be dissuaded. They were not going to be pulled away from this desire to fulfill this calling. And they put forth all of their energy into it. And in the end, Nate Saint and these other four men were killed by the very people that they came to serve. What happened after this is quite stunning as we read the story. Several of the wives and children of the slain missionaries would return to Ecuador and eventually establish the gospel in that region. It still exists today. Rachel Saint, Nate's sister, would invest the remaining decades of her life in the Indian tribe there, and she's actually buried there in Ecuador. And this is what I found most stunning Steve Saint would take the gospel to the same people who killed his father and establish more gospel works there. And only the Lord knows the exact numbers here, but vast numbers of missionaries throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s and even 90s until now testify that the Ecuador Five, them going on behalf of the king to represent the king in Ecuador, Bird on generations of missionaries, tens of thousands of them, which has now been catapulted into the worldwide harvest of the nations because of this one incident. But why do this? Why risk everything for the sake of the gospel? Because this message, this gospel is a force to be reckoned with. It is the power of God unto salvation never underestimate the power of the gospel the ecuador 5 did not <laughs> they knew that it wasn't just the supplies they were carrying the airplanes they would fly the 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 interaction they would have with the indian tribes that wasn't the main thing it was the gospel the treasure of the gospel that they were carrying and it could save even them to the uttermost it could save people who had killed everyone in their path could save them from from l- continuing this life of murder and, and and rage could save these Alka Indians. However, this gospel message has not been just entrusted to Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and Pete Fleming and Ed McCauley and Roger Udarian. It's it's been entrusted to us. But the saving initiative comes from God. The power of the gospel is not found in our winsome ways of sharing it. It is found only in the God of the gospel who alone has the power to change lives, save souls, even when it looks like there is no hope. We're going to have some encounters here, some gospel encounters here in the book of Acts chapter 16. That is where we pick up the missionary journey, Paul's second missionary journey, and he is about to walk into a place where there seemingly is no hope. No gospel work has been established there. the city was was harsh toward them as you'll as you probably already know. You probably read this before. I want you to see I want you just to track the power of the gospel because in the book of Acts, It's not necessarily just the acts of the apostles. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. The gospel is on the move. And Acts 29 is where we live today. And it's still on the move. Dr. Luke is writing this, this book in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as you know, it's the sequel to the gospel of Luke. And as you look at this chapter, you'll remember that Paul is on, like I said, his second missionary journey and they started in in jerusalem and antioch there where they had the council and then now they're moving their way and they're going to end up right here quite a long journey ahead of them and as michael already read we know that there was this macedonian call there was this vision that paul had in the night that said come over to macedonia and help us Paul didn't have to question God's will for his life in that moment. It was pretty clear where he needed to go next. Even though the Lord had laid roadblocks in the way for him to go anywhere else, he made it very clear that this is where they needed to travel. And so they came down to Troas, and then Paul sees the vision, and then when they do, they and their companions move forward. Who else is with them? Not just Silas, but also Luke, the eyewitness, and a young, budding pastor called Timothy, who they picked up um, recently in the beginning of this chapter. And so, what was Macedonia like? What are they What are they stepping into? It was a famous city that was steeped in history. It was founded by Alexander the Great, named after his grandfather, Philip of Macedon. It was a place where many famous battles were, were fought, and... Roman soldiers were encouraged to retire there. And you would too if you knew that you would be exempt from paying taxes the rest of your life if you lived in Philippi. (laughs) So in Macedonia, in Philippi specifically, this is a cross-cultural missionary experience that Paul is stepping into. And Paul is seeking to find a place of prayer. That's where we pick up the story in verse 13. And this morning we're going to look at three gospel encounters. Three times in this passage where we see the power of the gospel at work. I'll leave these up here for just a few seconds and then we're going to move slowly through each one. These gospel encounters, one is Lydia and her household. The second is the fortune teller and her masters. And the jailer and his household. What a great way to start a church. Get a businesswoman a fortune teller, and a retired Roman centurion jailer. What a great way to plant a church, right? But that's what the gospel is going to do. The gospel is going to be put on display for us this morning, and I hope that this will stir your heart to think about your own story as you look at the stories of these three individuals. Number one, Lydia and her household. Verse 13, it says, On the Sabbath we went outside the gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Who's the we? Luke is, is telling us that he is with Paul and with Silas and with Timothy. And this missionary quartet, as it were, they're, they, they're trying to find on the Sabbath a place of prayer. There's no synagogue that's been established yet. And so what would happen is there would be these places of prayer where people would maybe read the Shema, read read the Torah together, have this time of prayer together, and he finds this group of women. So who is Lydia? She's the one who's kind of leading this, this little Bible study. We know that from the text that she is religious. It says that in... Verse 13, they went there. Verse 14, there was heard a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. There she we see this. She is a religious, moral person. She's done very well for herself in the realm of fashion. She's from Thyatira, which for us maybe that's not um, something that would strike a chord in us. But if I was to say you know she worked in paris and and uh, and was really into the fashion industry that might tune your your ear a little bit more to go okay i can see that she's a businesswoman she's a leader in fashion she makes purple garments now for us a purple garment isn't that hard to come by these days even anything purple you could probably buy on amazon and it'd be here in 2 days well, that's not, that's not what Lydia was dealing with. That's not her time. Thyatira was a place where this purple dye was made. It was made very prevalently. It was in abundance. And so people would come from all over to get purple goods from this particular woman, Lydia, and others who would sell it. And if you remember in the book of Luke, who is it that is dressed in fine linen Purple linen, that is. Purple garments. It is the rich man. The story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. So, we can deduce from that that this is not a very cheap thing that she's doing. This is very expensive clothing. Wealthy people, royalty would come to buy this. She's doing very well for herself. She Has a very respectable occupation, even in the midst of Thyatira. And she is traveling to Philippi. And yet, she is looking for a place of prayer. She's very curious about this book called the Old Testament, the, the, the Torah. She's, she's, she's trying to find out what is going on here. I would love to worship God. I, 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 I acknowledge that there is a God. But the Bible is very clear here in this passage that she is not a child of God, at least not yet. And what's interesting here is Paul jumps into this ladies' Bible study. So picture this, ladies, on this next Tuesday morning when you guys get together in, in these rooms and, and pray together. and Just imagine then the Apostle Paul walks in in the middle of it and, and starts to say, Hey, um, um, I, no, you guys just keep on going. You guys just keep on with your Bible study. I'm just going to sit here and listen. But that wouldn't last very long. Eventually, you would want the apostle to talk. And that's really what happens here in this passage. She, she gives him the floor. And what does it say here in the text? It's so beautiful. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. What was Paul doing? He was speaking to her the word of God. And we see the power of the gospel just invades this lady's life. Even though on the outward appearance it looked like everything was going great for her. Respectable occupation. Doing well financially. Seemingly a worshiper of God. Someone who is curious about God. She seems to be living a moral, religious life. And yet Jesus steps in and invades that space with what Paul is going to share. The gospel. And the Lord is who opens her heart. And it says then, Lydia's eyes were open, her heart is open, and she is baptized. And not just her, but her what? Her entire household. And then she begs Paul and his companions to stay with her. She wants to, to thank them and to, and to spend more time with them. Here echoes here from Luke chapter 24, verse 31, when the two men, or the two people who are walking on the road to Emmaus, it says, and their eyes were opened and they saw who they were talking to. It was Jesus, the Messiah. It was his words about how from cover to cover, he is the Messiah. He is he is he is the God of the scriptures. He is the one who has come to save us from our sins. We see that echoed even here in Acts 16, where Luke again is saying a similar phrase. Her eyes, her heart was open. Again, she was morally upright. She was religious. But the power of the gospel can save the moral and the religious. I'm saying this because some of us, this is our story. This is is who we were. We came to church, we look good on the outside, seemingly things going well, we look clean. But inside, even though we claim to be worshipers of God every Sunday, our, our heart, our eyes have not been opened to our own sin, to our own need of God. And that is the, there's a blessing of growing up in the church. There's also, it's fraught with dangers because then you can just, think that because I enter this building and sit in these chairs I am a Christian and maybe none of, none of us would actually voice that We'd say, oh no you have to believe in the gospel but, but yet in our hearts that's not a reality see the Lord has to open your heart even there and God can save you from your religiosity God can save you from your own good works which are really filthy rags God can save you from that God can step into that space and save you today. You say, "Well, I'm a I'm, I'm Christmas and Easter people. You know, I, I, I come when it, I, I come every you know once in a while to church. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Maybe you define yourself as a Christian today, but right in the middle of that, Jesus can rescue you from that, from your good works, which don't help you onto God." You need the Lord to open your heart. If that has happened to you today, I hope this story resonates with you to see that even in the midst of this calling, this where Paul is being told by in this Macedonian vision through the Holy Spirit to come over and help us. It's interesting that that is the first encounter is Lydia, the moral, the religious. Now, if you're the Apostle Paul and you're Silas and you're young Timothy on your first missionary journey and you're looking at this, you're probably thinking, wow, now I see why the vision came. Look, I mean, we're, we, we met this this wonderful lady and all her household, and the gospel is at work. The wind is at our backs. This is great. Now, Paul hasn't forgotten what happened at Lystra and those other places on his first missionary journey. He knows that there's going to be opposition. But he's probably thinking, wow, Maybe maybe God's just ramping us up so that we can really do a great work here in Philippi. But from experience, Paul knew better. (laughs) It was going to take a turn, a turn towards suffering. And the next woman that I want us to see really has nothing to do with Lydia whatsoever. They could not be more opposite. In fact, the only thing they have in common is their gender. That's it. Gospel encounter number two, the fortune teller. And her masters. Not only can the power of the gospel save the moral and the religious, the power of the gospel can save the enslaved, demon controlled, and abused. Yes, God was working, but Satan was working as well. And we see this fortune teller, this spirit of divination, this psychic, if you will, that Paul encounters. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. hope as you read that, you start to see this, this girl was enslaved to these men, but she was also enslaved to Satan himself. doesn't seem to be much hope for this girl to ever break out of this. She followed Paul and us, Luke says, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It's interesting, wherever the missionaries went, she was attracting attention to their work. But this was a satanic attack. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. This was an attack on the gospel. And what's interesting here, we see even Luke's account of the demon-possessed man in Luke 8, where the man refers to Jesus as what? The son of the Most High God. And she, this, this, this slave girl, repeats the same phrase over and over. These are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way of salvation. Now back in these times, this, this, a girl like this would be enslaved to these owners. Why? Because she was making money for them. And the way that she would make the money was because the people there in that city thought that she was speaking on behalf of the god Apollo. Some of your texts might even say that she had a Pythian spirit based off of the snake Python, who, would, who actually Apollo killed but wasn't able to destroy the snake's voice, according to Greek mythology. And so Apollo still speaks through this snake's voice, and this snake can be in someone else. See how warped and wicked this is. And how this girl was was speaking these prophecies and telling these people's fortunes. All the while, these wicked men are pocketing the money and abusing her and using her in this way. So what does Satan do here? He's, he's not coming after Paul in some OK Corral showdown where they kind of get at the end of, of, you know, of, of one street or another, and they're about to draw their guns. That's, that's not what happens here. It's actually through the back door. It's very subversive. Satan is trying to derail the gospel by infiltrating it and showing somehow that, that this gospel, this, this message about the Most High God is akin to what the spirit of divination is, akin to what the demon-possessed girl is saying, and twisting it. On the fortune teller's lips, this claim that Paul served the most high God would just be misunderstood by the people. And the casual bystander could just imagine that Paul and Silas were just possessed by a a God as well. She was telling the truth, but she was doing it on behalf of the devil himself to discredit the gospel, to twist it. And she didn't just do this once. In the text, she's doing it multiple times doing it every day, following Paul and Silas and the companions around the city. No matter where they went, she was saying it in the background. You can see how distracting this would be after a while, right? You can see how if Paul was trying to have a conversation with someone or trying to maybe even even meet with Lydia and the other women and the other men that would be gathered there to maybe just talk about who Jesus was or even just have a normal conversation, always having that chatter in the background. And I love how the text is so honest. Some of you have it in your your text where it says Paul was what? Greatly annoyed. (laughs) He just couldn't stand it anymore. And he knew it was happening. He wasn't just annoyed because she was interrupting him. He was annoyed. He was frustrated because the gospel was being diluted. And they didn't fall for the devil's bait. And they remembered something. They remembered that every time a demon confirmed that Christ was the Son of God, what happened? Every time a demon says, you are the most high God, what do we have to do with you? What does Jesus do in those moments? He does what? He casts them out. Satan keeps the pressure on. It was his first and best approach. And then Paul responds decisively and through the power of whose name? The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who who alone has the power to cast out demons. Through that name, Paul commands the demonic spirits to leave the girl. And there's a play on words here. As the demons left the girl, so the prophets left the men who were making good on this girl's psychic powers. Now, my guess is here that there's not a lot of former slave girl, um, psychic, fortune-telling, demon-possessed people here today. But, here's the heart of the issue. Either by her own steps or by the force of others, she had given herself over to a type of depravity that has now consumed her life. You would think, if you, just, if you just looked at this girl's story and stopped right here, you would think her life is over. She has destroyed her life. She has wrecked her life. There's no hope for her. I love that this girl's story is right after Lydia's because it's so different. Lydia's put together, she's driven, she's brilliant, she's savvy, she's wealthy, she's well-known, well-respected. Jesus steps into that mess and saves her. And then right after that, there's this girl who is full of demons, taken advantage of, abused, a slave, demon-possessed. And Jesus steps into that space too. And he's up to the challenge. The power of the gospel is up to the challenge. And for some of us, maybe we can't relate with everything that's going on here with this slave girl, but maybe God met you in the middle of some of the most horrific and dark things that we could imagine. For some of us, maybe, maybe you can't relate to Lydia. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe you didn't grow up in the same way as some people here in this, in this church. Maybe, maybe you were in the middle of addiction, middle of despair, middle of darkness, and Jesus stepped in the midst of that uncleanness and rescued you. And if that's you today, the power of the Gospel can save the enslaved. It can save the demon-controlled. It can save the abused. Not just from people that are abusing you or, pe- or save you just from the demons or just save you just from being enslaved, but to rescue you so you belong to Jesus forever. And you can be set free from sin. So, how did the gospel find you? In these first two stories, what is it that's coming to your mind? How did, how did the gospel find you? Consider your story this morning and rejoice in the power of the gospel. Rejoice in what it can do, this chain breaking power that the gospel has over sin, no matter what it is. And as God used Paul to drive the evil spirit from the slave girl, that would be the very act that would eventually drive Paul and Silas to a place of persecution and eventually drive them out of the city. And that is where we enter the rest of the story. The jailer and his household. This is where the winds of violence really start to start to circle, circle around the disciples. It says here, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates, the governors there. These men are Jews, they said, and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and then the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods or clubs. Wow! You, if you're the Apostle Paul. You, you've obeyed the voice of the Lord. You have, you have uh, walked in His will. You have done everything that God has asked you to do in this moment. You, you reached out to Lydia and 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 all of her household. You saw the gospel bring, bring a work there. You reached out to this slave girl, and things, the gospel seems to be on the move, just knocking down everything in front of it, and then the whole city turns on you. Paul and Silas were in trouble. Not because they exercised the girl's demon, but because they had exercised the owner's source of income. Paul had touched these men's hearts the problem was, their hearts were in their wallets. And now all these false charges and and are, are going to be made and arrayed against Paul and Silas and their arrest would follow. Somehow, we're not told how this happens, but apparently Timothy and Luke were able to escape. So now they've been separated from their comrades. And it says here in verse 23 that after Paul and Silas had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And after receiving such orders, listen, the orders were what? To guard them carefully, but instead he puts them in the innermost part of the cell and fastens their feet into stocks. Looks like the jailer went perhaps a step further than he should have, brutally putting them in stocks. And putting them in the innermost prison. Lowering them into this manhole in the middle of the prison. Just a despicable place filled with all kinds of of, uh, of vile things that I won't go into. The power of the gospel can save the hardest of hearts. This jailer, no doubt, was one of these retired military personnel. He was a Roman military veteran. And he, had, he was living out, no doubt, his retirement there, not paying taxes, receiving his pension, doing his thing. But no doubt he had seen no, all kinds of, of the horrors of war and the, the brutality of the Roman regime and had bought into that. And so it, it makes perfect sense why he would put these men into stocks, why he would, why he would continue to beat them, why he would treat them, in this way, because that's what the Romans did. As one author put it, um, the Romans weren't about giving away free trophies and stickers to people. Okay? They, they really, they were awful, brutal people when it came to treating their enemies. They would crucify their enemies, they would beat their enemies. And this is what the jailer is about. This is the third encounter the jailer in his household. It's interesting here that if you were to picture this, this scene happening, if, if you were on a mission trip and, and people were, were getting saved, and then all of a sudden you had people grabbing you and stripping you down and beating you and throwing you into prison, how would you feel at this point? Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the end. But Lord, you, you called us here into the city. Why would you call us here only for us to die? Only for us... But you know, just like Jim Elliot and Nate Sane and the rest of those missionaries, they didn't know how it was going to end. They just, were, they just wanted to be obedient. And that's what Paul and Silas are doing here. And when we find them in the innermost part of the prison, when their feet are fastened into stocks, your body being contorted in different ways that it should never be contorted in, and they are... Their backs are bleeding from getting beaten repeatedly. What is it that we find them doing? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were two things. They were praying, which we probably would expect from them to do. Maybe you would be praying too. But they were singing hymns to God. Why were they singing? Maybe you've wondered that as you've read this passage. Why were they singing? It was midnight. They were in pain. They were weary. They had been cut off from their traveling partners. They were at the hands of this wicked jailer. What if I were to say to you, when you hit rock bottom in your life, sing hymns to God. Would that be good counsel, Dr. Hager? When was the last time you sang? What does singing have to do with anything? I've hit rock bottom. There's no way out. But Paul and Silas, that's what they're doing. See, I think we would probably be insulted if someone told us to sing in that moment. But they were literally at rock bottom. They were at the bottom of the prison. And they sang hymns to God. I think they were singing because they knew that that would bring about the display of God's power. Remember Nate Saint and his fellow, his fellow uh, comrades? On January 8th, 1956, their last recorded act, according to Elizabeth Elliot, was to sing a hymn together. Just before they would die, for the gospel's sake. This was the hymn they sang. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, and needing more each day thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts, a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee, and in thy name we go. They sang these words because they believed them. They trusted in the power of the gospel that it would prevail. Paul and Silas sang that night as a bold declaration of victory for the gospel. And what does God do? The prisoners were listening to them. No doubt the jailer was listening to them. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake and the foundations of the prison were shaken. Little footnote, anytime you lock up an apostle or a disciple, an earthquake usually follows. The jailer didn't realize this. But that's what happens. This singing of praise leads God to shake the foundations of the prison. When was the last time our singing caused God to shake the foundations of this building? I know a lot of us are glad that this building is not crumbling right now um, and shaking because we sing. But that was a display of God's power. And when we sing, we find joy, we find hope, we find comfort and assurance in the God we're singing about. Singing to God is the natural overflow of a heart that's been forgiven and rescued by Him. Paul and Silas are singing songs of victory. Later, Paul would write to the Philippian church in Philippians 1. He would say, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but to suffer for Him. Paul and Silas would live this out. But awakened by the noise, the jailer rushed in. He's confused. He's trembling with fear. The earthquake has not just shaken the prison, but it's shaken him to his core. And he runs up to, to Paul and he says, after Paul has told him not to kill himself, he did, there's no need to do yourself any harm. We're, all, we're still here. Because if he was caught with this, the Roman code was that he would be put to death. And so, the jailer had reason to fear here. But he says, men, what must I do to be saved? He's not coming to Paul saying, you know, I've been going over these uh, evangelism explosion notes that you left me here. And, and um, I just would like to know how I become a Christian. He has seen what this God can do. And he is saying, how can I be not just delivered from and be safe from this earthquake, but how can I be delivered from this God who seems to have such great power? What must I do to be saved? How can I I be saved from this God? He was concerned about the physical danger, to be sure, but he was also looking... For deliverance from the God that Paul and Silas had proclaimed. Would he be spared from this earth shaking God? Maybe he had heard the testimony of the fortune teller. Maybe he had heard Paul and Silas even preach in the city. He had definitely handed their incarceration firsthand, so he even heard their songs in the night. But his question was sincere and earnest. And he received an answer that has resounded through the ages. You can say it with me. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Paul doesn't list a system, an organization, or a religion to join. He just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that night, he was saved as well as his entire family. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. It's interesting, the one who inflicted the wounds is now washing the wounds. This jailer who had been bitter, who had, been, who had the hardest of hearts, no doubt, had now been softened, had now been changed. And Jesus invades this space of this man. And his family. And the power of the gospel resulted in the conversion and forgiveness of these guilty sinners. Lydia, the businesswoman, the ex-fortune teller, the Philippian jailer, and probably a few ex-inmates of that prison, made up the first European church. It's probably not the way Paul envisioned it. When he saw the vision, come over and help us. The rich The poor, the slave, the free, male and female, all one in Christ. And the flag of the gospel was unfurled on a continent that needed it so desperately. The power of the gospel was on display. Not just then, but also now. And it is still an earth-shaking message that we carry to the nations To our neighbors, to our workplaces. This is the power of the gospel. I want you to be struck and be stunned today by how powerful the gospel is and how, when it encounters an individual, it is unstoppable. And one day we'll be rejoicing around the throne, singing of the wonders of the cross because of what the gospel has done for all of us. Let's pray.